Hey, it's Bradley. We had recorded a usual Tuesday episode with me and Hugo, and you know what? It just kind of sucked um, and didn't feel comfortable releasing it. I want to make sure what I give to you guys is of pretty good quality. So we scrapped it. Um, instead, we're going to post an episode that would have gone up normally on a Thursday with Carl Miller from Demos. Uh, that's a think tank in London, and it's about tech regulation. So uh, please check it out. And uh, Hugo and I will be back next week. Thanks. All right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. We are recording, as usual, from P&T Knitwear, 180 Orchard Street, Manhattan. Uh, my guest today is Carl Miller. Carl is the research director of the Center of Analysis for Social Media at Demos in London. He studies how social media is changing the world that we live in and uh, just wrote a book called The Death of Gods, The New Global Power Grab. So, Carl, thank you for joining us. Hi, Bradley, everyone. Thanks for having me on. So we, we spend a lot of time on this podcast focusing on kind of the the challenges of social media and kind of the need for regulation like here in the U.S. repealing or changing Section 230. Um, the reason that I asked to have you on is the European kind of system has both from, I think, a philosophical and sort of logistical approach differed from the U.S. and at least from a couple thousand miles away, it seems like a better system to me. But for all I know, that's just because it's, it's easy to think something else is better than what you have. So, um, Big picture, what do you, how, I admit mean, this is hard to do, but how would you encapsulate kind of the European mentality towards what social media should and should not be allowed to do? Yes. Well, I mean, so the big picture, firstly, is that there is a, a, a this is a fiendishly tangled and complex set of interlocking legislative frameworks, which even the regulators and the, and the European Union policymakers agree is, uh, is, 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 is complicated and, and currently untested. But if we soar above all of that and we really just look at it, what it's basically doing is trying to create a legal structure of democratic oversight of responsibilities for the major platform providers. And primarily, that's about content moderation, first and foremost. There's aspirations in both in the policymakers I know um, and in the law itself to actually look at the mechanics of platforms and what's served up and and um, uh, and and how the platforms work um, around antitrust uh, and uh, and market competition. But at least initially, the laws coming into place are around um, holding the platforms to account for hosting legal content. So in the US, and maybe this is purely sort of an ethos of each continent sort of thing, but, you know, the Telecommunications Decency Act of 1996, as you know, provided legal protection for the platform so they couldn't be sued for anything posted, any content posted by the users, um, maybe kind of reflects an American kind of libertarian, you know, innovation protecting business. The European model seems a little more focused on how do we protect uh, consumers, how do we protect regular people? Is there a philosophical divide or do things just evolve that way? Well, I mean, firstly, I, I would say, you know, that there's a fair degree of, of concern in the EU about why we haven't created companies as innovative and as smart and as and as obviously successful as the US tech giants. Um, I know that plenty of EU member states would like that to happen. European Union wants to be a major hub of innovation as well. So there's, there's, there's definitely... That, that's always been a kind of uh, a thread in the discussions. And I was in, in Stockholm... 
um, for a, a European Commission event where the, the Sweden was assuming the presidency. It's a kind of complicated and internal bureaucratic thing where they kind of move the president through member state to member state. And, and you know, the, the deputy president of the European Commission underlined innovation, even when announcing, you know, um, the, the kind of rolling forward of all this legislation. But yes, of course, I mean, from the very beginning across the European Union and in the UK, which obviously isn't part of the European Union, there's been this discussion for at least the last 10 years that I've been involved in around online harm. Um, and, and all the different individual, psychological and sociological damage that can be done when you essentially create platforms which are designed to grow in an unrestrained way and at all other costs. Right. Um, and, and that's really what we're trying to, to control, I think, in this legislation. Obviously, the UK has legislation in parallel to all of this. Right, because it's, it's independent now. Um, right, so I, I guess the question is, in some ways, when Google, when Facebook, whoever tells the EU why whatever proposed regulation is, is terrible, they're always making the argument of both unintended consequences and you're going to stymie our further innovation. And the other side of it is, look, even if we that is true, we're still going to take basic steps to protect people because you know consumer safety outweighs innovation. Would you say that if, if you asked kind of the European leaders to just choose either consumer safety or innovation and be totally honest about it. How do you think the poll would fall out? Well, I, you know what? I, I think that the, the kind of public, um, the, the, the public affairs position in the tech giants has gone through a kind of evolution over the last mm -hmm. 10 years. I think it began with that. Yeah. I remember sitting in meetings with the tech giants 10 years ago where they were saying, this is going to, you know, this is, this is going to be the death knell of innovation in our companies. Um, then I think there was a kind of period where, um, they realized that there were responsibilities that they had, even if they weren't enshrined in law, but that it was really then a question of definitions. So, um, you know, the, the questions will always come back. Okay, well, define disinformation, define extremism, define online harm. What do you actually mean by these things? And what's enough? What do we actually have to do? Um, and actually, in the last period of time, I'd say the last like three years, maybe, um, they've been asking for regulation. I mean, we've got to remember that, that alongside this actual law, um, the tech giants have gone through one of the most sustained and, and remarkable reputational batterings in the history of corporate America. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the line of, of writers and journalists, people like me, that have, have done investigation after investigation, after expose, after whistleblowing account, you know, um, revealing the many, the many things which we're alleging these platforms to have done and the damage that they've caused um, has, been, has been completely unbroken. So I think it, it's reached a point where... Um, both the platforms as well as the kind of legislative authorities kind of want there to be just a clear definition of what their responsibilities are. Because it's been, I think it's been very difficult for them to, to know actually what they need to do to, to make that battering, that reputation or onslaught go away. I, I think that's right. Um, and by the way, not unlike what you're hearing on, at least here in the US from the crypto companies, which is to the SEC, just tell us what the regulation is, right? We'll comply with it. But we don't even know what we're supposed to be doing. With that said... Um, my at least basic thesis is, and this is pretty fucking obvious, but um, these are all for-profit companies with incredibly high share prices. They all make money from advertising. That's basically their business model. Advertising is based on clicks. Negative content drives more clicks than positive content. And so even though they talk a good game about content moderation and they realize the damage to their reputation when really bad things happen as a result of the content on their platforms, they still actually, at least here in the U.S., fight any attempt at all to change the liability for it, which says to me, yes, they may recognize that they need sort of a different public posture a little bit, 
but their underlying motivation is, you know, more profit ahead of sort of any of the harm that their platforms are causing. Um, you agree or disagree? I've got a slightly different thesis, I think. Um, I don't think it's completely, Bradley, different to yours, but but I've always seen these massive um, sprawling empires as, as being composed of kind of different important kingdoms and interests within them. And I think from the very beginning, there's I think there's been a kind of a struggle happening across each of these tech giants between, on the one hand, teams to do with policy, legal, conversational health, um, online harm, and then kind of growth and revenue. Uh, and I think the way that the way that they've developed is largely that most of the time when those two things have come into conflict, the teams around growth and revenue have really won. And that goes down to the founders and goes down to their kind of messianic visions really around what they think their platforms are really going to do and the fact they need to reach everyone in the world. I think it's extraordinary the, the, the lengths that Google and Facebook have gone to to reach everyone around the world. And I think that has meant that um, they've created platforms which any serious time there was a kind of in- misincentive between trying to keep them safer and trying to make them bigger they've kind of leaned towards making them bigger. So I, th- I think in that sense, I agree with you. I, I, I don't think it's just about legal liability. I think this is all to do with virals and, and friction and um, the, the how easy it is to sign up. They have millions of opportunities to make their platforms more resilient, more difficult to manipulate uh, and safer for people. But that that would mean that, um, that, that, that probably that it would also make them less sticky and less compelling for people to use in many cases. And I think for them internally, They've always not been able to match that up with their own fiduciary duties. So they they think that um, well, if we're the only ones, it's almost like nuclear disarmament. They're like, okay, if we unilaterally start chain tweaking our algorithms away from optimizing for attention, you know, we're just going to lose um, share of the market to competitors, uh, and that would be in violation of own fiduciary duties to our shareholders. I think they feel. So that, that to me has always been the tension. Yeah, that makes sense. So then, you know, when, when you describe kind of the thought process within these giant platforms, you almost describe sort of that different pieces of the company have different perspectives and, and different motivations. Um, what does that say about antitrust and the need or lack thereof um, to break Google and Meta and Apple and others into smaller companies? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know what, and I think that the, the lack of serious antitrust action in the states, I think, is much more surprising to me than the than 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 the difference between the European Union and the states when it comes to online harm and consumer protection. I mean, we definitely do come from different traditions when it comes to consumer protection, but. You know, I mean, anyone that wants free, you know, free and innovative markets like needs to care about competition, um, and I, I think that the 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 um, the, the way in which the companies have managed to both identify and procure or limit emergent threats is actually one of the real unsung um, parts of the innovation that they've yeah. done. Yeah. I mean, I remember going into some of the tech giants and being shown, you know, I mean, literally a, a, a an almost unbroken sea of people, basically whose only job it was, was to scan the world looking for disruptive threats that they could either limit, innovate around, or, or, or ultimately, obviously, kind of purchase or aqua hire through and they've been amazingly good at that amazingly good i think it, i think it stretches all the way back to myspace and the very large boneyards they see from their competitors all the way back 
uh, in the kind of, um, you know, in, in the graveyard of departed social media platforms. So and they've always, I think, felt much more vulnerable internally than maybe we, we, we see them externally. Um, but yes, I mean, it's, it's massively pressing. I mean, I, I think it's astonishing that there hasn't been a serious um, antitrust challenge. And I think that largely is to do with how slow we've been at really understanding what new monopolies look like. Right. Um, you mentioned earlier kind of the concern, at least among some people in the EU, that their regulatory policies might be sort of stymieing the ability to, to create a Google or Microsoft, whatever it is in Europe. Do you think it's more regulatory or normative, meaning that, you know, I'm an early stage venture investor, right? So I, I see founders kind of right at the beginning, seed, series A. Um, and to me, the thing that marks them the most is the people who have the biggest willingness and stomach and fortitude to disrupt an entrenched interest, to disrupt social norms, to take all of the beating that you take um, to do it, it is a big determinant in success. And I wonder if part of it is in the US, there's at least some culture that rewards you know, that type of behavior, that type of disruption, and at least seems like in Europe, um, that's frowned upon. And as a result, do you think it's that underlying mentality that explains why there really aren't that many impressive European-born tech companies. You know, obviously Spotify is a good example, but there aren't that many. Um, is mm. it normative or is it regulatory? Yeah, I don't think it's regulatory because let's remember that, that that we had precious little regulation, and and in my view, not enough during most of the time when 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 uh, Facebook and the others emerged as as, as players on the digital landscape. So, I, I think it's a whole tangle of things. But I mean, in in a nutshell, I think it's the inability of a European country to really create a competitor to Silicon Valley over this time, because this isn't a US-wide phenomenon for most of its history, right? This is right. a very particular, reasonably small valley, you know, in the Bay Area that has essentially managed to do all those things you've said, like bring together this kind of golden mingling of astonishing amounts of venture, um, uh, uh, just um, a, a really tight, like kind of densely networked clustering of, 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 of incredible talent. And then this kind of, yeah, normative, social series of values around, you know, trying and failing, setting up companies and, and embracing all the things you need to do to, to try and disrupt marketplaces for good and for bad. Right. So the big tech issue here at the moment in the US is chatbot GPT and the default posture among the cognoscenti, so policy experts, media, regulators, all that stuff, academics, is concern, right? Basically, it's hard to talk to someone who thinks they're an informed person without hearing them tell you about all the dangers of AI and chatbot GPT specifically. Is that how you feel? Well, I, I mean, I actually, amongst all my writing and everything else, actually, I'm a partner in a in a in a technology firm dedicated to researching natural language processing for the last okay. ten years. So, exactly. Uh, well, so I'm not a foundational researcher in NLP, but most of my colleagues are. Yeah. And um, I'd say, like, it, it was about six months ago on other tasks other than generative text creation, where um, my NLP colleagues started using words like crazy magical voodoo machine learning and things like that and there was definitely this kind of really incredible excitement coming from them about how these new large language models you know and autoaggressive models were were able to um do tasks which were different just just fundamentally different to the other things we've done in nlp um so i mean the 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 the, the, the astonishing rate that nlp like kind of or ML driven like text analytics is going forwards like it's is is always what it is when technology goes forwards it's it can be frightening but also deeply thrilling i think um i think we often do 
to me, like the, there is a weird characteristic of all of this, just about the the sheer desire that we have to train computers to behave like human beings. Right. Uh, and I, I think um, definitely in my world, which is largely to do with, say, influence operations and disinformation, trying to harden information spaces, protect elections, climate summits, and so on, there obviously is a concern when you have um, you can see that that, that that capabilities are increasingly allowing kind of threat actors to mimic being human beings. I mean, as a as as a as a researcher, we know that the main way in which we can influence a crowd is really not just by spamming them with kind of vapid, kind of like, you know, falsifiable truth claims. It's really by creating kind of social and kinship links. Right. Like at friendships really. That's how people change. Uh, and and were I a threat actor you know, I would be really looking at whether I can use those kinds of models to, you know, create tens of thousands of of of, of continuous kind of social bonds with people. Um, that would be so. So definitely, I think that there are new ways in which, say, things can be made worse, but obviously made better too. Yeah. Um, and uh, and you know, we use exactly those self same models when we go out and try and identify um, kind of uh, influence operations in the world. So. It- when people ask me a lot, you probably get asked a lot about this too, which is sort of how will AI be regulated, right? And the th- kind of first thing I always say is, look, we haven't dealt with the issues that we should have dealt with in the US 10 years ago, right? We don't have a version of GDPR. We don't have a Digital Services Act. Section 230 is alive and well. We're not aggressively prosecuting anyone um, with antitrust. So yeah, there's 50 things that you probably should do to regulate AI and the same thing with, with web three. Um, but we haven't done the basic stuff to regulate Facebook and Twitter and Google. Um, so from my perspective, it's been, yes, this will happen, but it's a pretty long way off. And as someone who invests in companies where I only do so, if I think that I can change the regulatory structure to really benefit my portfolio companies, I'm not looking that hard at AI right now because I just feel like the regulatory fight is really far away. What do you think? No, I think that's, Bradley, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, um, kind of, uh, I, I, I mean, bringing the experience about the online safety bill, for instance, and, and what's happened in the EU t- to your listeners, um, the, you know, re- regulation in any kind of re- meaningful and thoughtful way is such a massively detail-oriented. I mean, the devil's in the detail. These are um, these are bills which have taken years to put together, you know, all these different tribes of the internet coming around, the the researchers and the activists and the and the and the tech giants and the and the regulators and the legislators all coming around and having these discussions. You can't rush this kind of stuff through. And we're not even at the stage when we've really seen these things proven in court yet. So there's going to be a whole series of kind of um, uh, kind of a case setting, um, I'm sure, challenges and counter challenges in the years ahead. Um, I would love to see this. I mean, uh, what, what frightens me, though, is is really just how um, distant these things seem in the US legislative agenda. Like they don't even really seem to be being propelled forwards in many cases. No, so- B- Biden did a little bit. Hopefully you didn't waste your time watching the State of the Union a few weeks ago. But he <laughs> he did talk about tech regulation. And I think probably two reasons why. One is it, it polls, as I'm sure you've seen, incredibly well, right? Uh, totally bipartisan. And the second thing is, at least in the U.S., where we right now have a divided Congress, where the Republicans control the, controlling the House and the Democrats the Senate, um, tech regulation may be one of the few things you can get consensus on, because the one thing we know is everyone hates the platforms. The right may hate it for different reasons than the left, but they both hate it. Um, so I feel like, at least here in the U.S., 
we're seeing a little more emphasis towards it. But again, you know, the hallmark of our system is people talk and talk and talk and nothing ever actually happens. Right. I mean, we go all the way back to the Obama White House and obviously they were setting up kind of commit like high level commissions looking at algorithmic uh, regulation and oversight. And, you know, I mean, I know this has been a kind of a kind of um, a high political concern in the States as long as it's been in Europe. But um, the devil's in the detail, as I said. And and let's see if that bipartisan um, support holds when you actually start laying down in, in draft legislation, like what the requirements for the platforms would be. Because my main worry in the States is that exactly the social effects which we worry about, you know, of um, creating essentially... Uh, kind of damaging, almost like cult-like social movements that are um, that are um, kind of fed um, hugely cherry-picked versions of the truth in one way or another, and for various reasons. You know that is exactly the kind of creating the kind of social structures which are look to me like it's making bipartisan accord on ho- online harms completely impossible. I mean, disinformation, believe it or not, began kind of ten years ago as a kind of fairly arid kind of like think tank and academic analytic concept and it's just been pulled apart by uh by by um uh, po- uh kind of polarization and and um sectarian rancor in the states yeah um the the thing that jap that at least here in the u.s that chatbot gpt replaced as sort of a topic of conversation is elon musk's ownership of twitter um, <laughs> as someone who studies social media what's your take on it so far it looks like a disaster, but is that actually true? And if you had to sort of, you know, if, if you could buy Twitter stock, it's not private, but if you could, would you bet on Twitter and Elon or would you bet against them? Oh, gosh. You know you're on a U.S. podcast when you're being asked to do uh, stock tips. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Um, so, um, I mean, Musk's purchase of Twitter, like, definitely represented to me, like, the most serious, like, departure from the online harms agenda so far. I mean, we, we, we're actually got research about to come out uh, looking at the level of anti-Semitism on the platform over the period of the acquisition up to now and, yeah. and, and some months before. Um, so um, without kind of scooping my own story, you know, uh, I, I, everyone watch out for that because you'll, you'll, you'll see what happens when you suddenly start firing all the people in the, uh, in, in the platform responsible for platform moderation. Um, I mean... Definitely, the way in which the platform has behaved has changed enormously. Like we can see that, and we will continue to see that in the in the months ahead. I mean, has it? Is it working as a company? No. I mean, we can see much less, obviously, now than we could before about um, about um, Twitter's financial performance. But all the indicators are that um, you know, selling advertising is quite important to reassure those advertisers that they're not advertising next to a neo-Nazi. Uh, and uh, that's exactly what firing all your platform moderation, changing your um, changing your content uh, uh, posture um, is is not going to reassure them is happening. So if if I were the founder of a new social media platform, Mastodon, or just something fictional, and I came to you and said, "Okay, Carl, given Twitter's state of disarray, given everything you know, if I wanted to now create something that would give me you know differentiation in the marketplace and a competitive advantage." What would you advise them to do in terms of the structure and the platform? Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the watchword has always been like decentralization, isn't it, for the next generation, of which Mastodon and Eugen, who, who is Mastodon's creator, and I know he was always created Mastodon with the idea that um, I interviewed him several years ago um, with the idea that um, it was waiting in the wings for some deep crisis happening at Twitter, and, and here it is. Um, 
decentralization in and of itself, I'm not sure is actually particularly beneficial to people. Like, I don't think most people care about the infrastructure. They just care about the, they care about what it means for them. And obviously, Macedon is one kind of offer, which is basically decentralized rules. So everyone can kind of set up their own mini kind of uh, Mastodon uh, kind of instance and run it within the Fediverse and set very different rules around the, the content moderation. Me personally, I would probably lean in for a different reason. I would try and set it up so that people got more of a, a piece of the actual revenue generation. Um, I can You can easily imagine now um, kind of a network-based um, uh, platforms delivering the same basic kind of service as Facebook. Yeah. And imagine if you were giving 50% of that um, right. away to the people actually participating. You, you, I mean, YouTube, to a certain extent, does that already. You've, you've got to hit pretty high numbers for any of the money to be meaningful. But I think that's right. And I think when people talk about the creator economy, that may actually be what, be what they mean, which is, you know, the, the the two things where I think at least in the U.S. consumers really get screwed over is, one, I can only go after you if you defame me on Twitter, and odds are you, whoever it is, probably doesn't have that many assets to recover. And two, I'm not only the product, but I'm creating the content for free also at the same time, right? And so being able to at least monetize that to a certain extent logically seems like it should have uh, appeal to consumers. Um, you know, and I guess, do you think it's working with YouTube so far? Well, um, I, I would say that, I mean, content creators is one thing, but but I mean, the kind of disruptive ent- challenge to that would be kind of network-based platforms that are spreading out that amount of money amongst all the participants. So that would be both the creators of it, the viewers of it, um, innovators, content moderators, all of it, like basically recreating the company as a series of a much more organic and poorer series of people doing different jobs at different times, according to some form of remuneration scheme, you know, and that's, that's kind of what, what, what I could see now, the kind of combination of like decentralized technology and cryptocurrencies might be able to proffer in the years ahead. Um, they're very powerful network effects. We always have to remember at these companies, like there's, there's, there's a reason why, you know, Facebook has grown to be 3 billion users. So the kind of, the, the challenge has got to be, um, has got to be um, pretty fierce. I mean, it always reminds me um, this question of uh, how you challenge the tech giants of Corey Doctorov's idea of adversarial interoperability. You know, the idea that really any challenge has to reflect the fact that this is the landscape we live in now and kind of connect in, dock into the platforms in ways which both uses their size, but in ways which is a challenge to them. So um, I would say that that idea as well would be would be something you'd have to build in. An idea that you it would be something which would be an overlay on the networks, might use the networks, might publish content on them, um, but which actually isn't just something which um, can be swallowed by them. So I'm not sure how big of an issue this has been or not in the UK and the EU, but but here in the US, what to do with TikTok is also a major sort of concern among social media issues. Um, if mm. the White House called, you said, okay, Carl, we have this platform that exists, tens and tens of millions of people use it and enjoy it. So just removing it um, isn't particularly easy to do. But at the same time, we have genuine national security concerns because of China. Um, what would you advise them? Well, firstly, give us the API. Um, so as, as a researcher, you know, I mean, governments around the world are actually now very reliant on the research community to be able to flag kind of important trends, departures, threats, uh, like where where is the harms happening on their platform? You know, from whom, in what way? You know, when we were we were publishing lots of work on Facebook and Twitter and the others around the Ukraine war, 
pro-invasion influence operations. You know, the information spaces have obviously become basically a, a, a new theater of war, really. Um, and we can expect all autocratic states and possibly liberal democratic ones as well to be very active on them in maneuver across information. We can see nothing on TikTok. Like we can do no systematic research there at all. And what that means is that if you really go and you look at all the academic papers and you look at all the think tank reports and so on, it looks like Twitter's the venue for everything. And it's not. It's just the most accessible, researchable platform. Right. Um, And platforms that don't offer that kind of data availability, I think, are probably getting away with murder. I mean, I had tons of kind of anecdotal reports coming to me of all kinds of very suspicious things happening. You know, Putin memes from left to right on TikTok that, that, that we just weren't able to research in a systematic way. So ask number one yep. uh, is give the data over to everyone so that we know what's actually happening. And yeah, I, I mean, ask number two, um, you know, I, I, I think we're, we, we are moving in a world of uh, kind of um, data sovereignty, really, where, where every nation state is going to require the data to kind of be based um, uh, uh, on their shores. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and for that, for there just to be um, really clear about what happens to that data when it leaves their shores, you know, and the, the internet itself is kind of breaking apart in front of our eyes as we have the kind of splinter net and and China moves away. Right. Even though England is, you know, the furthest away in Europe from Ukraine and the war, you know, you're living on a continent that is in the midst of a really serious war. You know, here from the U.S., you know, we under we read about it every day, but I don't think we feel it in any particular way. Do, do, do you feel it? Do people in the U.K. feel it? Does it feel like this is a really big concern and problem? Or is it just something happening still, you know, a thousand miles away that you're not particularly worried about? No, I mean, it's a couple of hours flight away from us. So we, we, we definitely feel it. Um, you know, I've been in London, you know, during DevFrest Ukraine, where where Ukrainians came over to host one of the three stages, one of them in Ukraine was in a bomb shelter, you know, and had them crying over the lunch about people that they've lost during the war. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there are large numbers of Eastern European communities across the UK. This is definitely something that we, we see and we, 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 we see and feel. Um, I mean, this is, yeah, I mean, there are just millions upon millions of parallel tragedies happening there and they're, they're rippling all across the entire continent at the moment. Um, so we, we feel it in that sense, in terms of the kind of social and human cost, but obviously we feel this in terms of the kind of European security order as well. Um, this has ripped up, since 48, this has ripped up our, our, our basic assumptions about, about how um, the UK and other countries would stay safe. Now, I don't think there's a, a sense here in the UK that we are going to be attacked by Russia. I mean, we're a, we're a nuclear power, you know, right. and we are actually at the, at the end, end of Europe, everything is going on. But, but yes, I mean, th- th- there, is, there has not been another event, I think, um, since 9-11, at least in my lifetime, that, that seems to have caused such a fundamental reorienteering of, um, uh, of, of, of our kind of natural security um, kind of architecture or government work. Right. I mean, you know, project after project, program after pro- program across the nonprofit space and across government has spun up so quickly to deal with this. Right. I mean, it's interesting in that, you know, there was an article I saw somewhere yesterday about how while European leaders promised all of these tanks to Ukraine, um, they either didn't actually have them or they weren't working or they didn't have the right people to even do the training. And while I'm loath to ever say Donald Trump had a good point about anything, to a certain extent, his point about NATO really just being the U.S. military and Europe just sort of leaning on it without doing much on their own end, it's starting to seem like maybe he was right. Uh, what do you think of that? 
Well, I mean, I, I think it's it's certainly true to say that without the uh, with without U.S. military support, we would have an utterly different situation in Ukraine today, for sure. I mean, the the U.S. has 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 given as much in military donation as I think every other country put together. Um, that's not to say that European Union is, isn't trying to help in other ways, um, and and it is. Um, but but we there's, I think this has just blown a hole in um, in uh, military planning uh, across the continent. We don't have the we didn't have the military industrial base. Uh, we didn't have the stocks. I mean, no one thought there was going to be a mass artillery battle like rippling across Eastern Europe. Right for for now over a year. Um, right. So do, so, however this war gets resolved, does it then lead to? Uh, countries in Europe saying, okay, we've really got to rethink and work on our military, or do they just kind of go back to saying, we'll let the US handle it? Well, I mean, you can see that the uh, the, the military spending is ticking up across most of the European Union. Germany has announced um, uh, probably the most fundamental overhaul of of military spending um, since the Second World War. Um, uh, and uh, lots of other countries as well, like uh, have basically completely um, reappraised their national security strategies and therefore their their kind of budgetary planning as well. So no, I, I don't think that we're going to. Um, I mean, the, the one thing that a war doesn't breed is complacency. Um, we there may have been a complacency going into this war, but there definitely isn't now. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think there is any kind of appetite. From the European Union to be reliant on the U.S. military for for guarantees of its own kind of security and and sovereignty. Yeah, that makes sense. Hey, Carl, how do people find out more about your research? How do they follow you? You know, I have a feeling people will be really intrigued after the last half hour or so. So, what do they do to learn more? <laughs> well, um, I mean, I'm still on Twitter, which sounds quite an old school <laughs> thing to say nowadays. But at Carl Jack Miller on Twitter, um, or just get in contact with me. Um, so, Carl uh, Miller at Demos Co UK. Um, you know, uh, I, I always uh, happy to have people reach out and keen to explain our work. Cool. Great. Carl, thank you for joining us. Great. Thanks, Bradley. Thanks, Bradley.